Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Kristen McCarthy, the Director of Grants and Operations here at the Foundation, and I also author our weekly report on settlements and annexation. Um, today is February 8th, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ziv Stahl, the Executive Director of Yeshtin, um, which is an Israeli NGO that monitors settlement activity and related trends in the West Bank. Um, go to FMAP's website, fmap.org, and the research page for this podcast to see Ziv's full and impressive bio. Um, and any links to articles or reports that I mentioned will also be on that page. So Ziv, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I know this is, we're delighted to have you back so soon. Also, I mean, bringing you back is probably not indicative of good news, but I know um, a couple of weeks ago, you spoke with my colleague, Peter Beinart, about um, specifically the new Israeli government's coalition agreements and what those agreements had to say about um, the plans of the new government for expanding its control over the West Bank, particularly with growing settlements and legalizing outposts and policies that amount to annexation. So I have you back today to kind of expand on that conversation um, with regards to settler violence, which is a key, I mean, it's an important um, long-term trend, but also something that we, um, that is very live and real right now. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, Yeshin recently published an, a new report in which they've you've been tracking data on settler violence since 2005. So now we have that data updated to 2022. Um, and we're going to get to that because I think that um, report and those numbers show really important long-term trends that are, you know, go back way further than the current Israeli government. Um, that show how systemic settler violence is and endemic it is. Um, and it's an extremely important context for the conversation I want to have. Well, the conversation that's really relevant today, which is, um, you know, in the news recently, particularly in the past two weeks since um, the attack by a Palestinian on Israelis in the Neve Yaakov settlement um, that resulted in the death of seven. Um, there's been so much talk about Palestinian violence um, with Palestinian terrorists being, you know, a lot of talk of terrorism, um, speculation about a new intifada, which always frames it as an uprising of Palestinian violence. Um, and these are kind of the messages that at least from my perch in the U.S. that we're hearing a lot right now. Um, but there's been such comparatively little coverage of um, Israeli violence, and that's both state violence in the form of government policies <laughs> as well as um, an IDF actions and, and the violence of settlers, which is an important piece of how the occupation functions, I think. So um, that's what we're here to talk to you about today. It's definitely not a fun topic, but you and Yeshin um, have, you know, not only documented this and tracked it, but can unpack for us what it all means. So can we first start by talking about what you've seen over the past two weeks since that major terrorist attack attack on Neve Yaakov, what has happened in the West Bank since then? So in terms of uh, state violence, we see, but we've seen this before this uh, specific attack. Uh, it is part of a bigger military operation named uh, Breaking Waves, which means uh, trying to handle uh, terror groups and uh, um, people who are involved in uh, all sorts of activities. 
basically it means that the military raids uh, homes and towns and uh, sometimes arrest people and a lot of times also injures and kills people. This is part of uh, the, the incident, uh, for example, where Shirin Abu Akhle was shot. Well, you see that they also hurt in certain occasions, uh, innocent state buyers and uh, civilians, not just people who are actually involved in uh, military actions. So this is one part which uh, it, it goes on for, I think a year or maybe even more in the West Bank. And that really increases the level of violence in the West Bank. And the, I would say the weight of, of occupation that Palestinians feel in everyday life. And on the other hand, we see a spike in settler violence, which is also not new. Uh, and, uh, and it's not a new thing that happened in the recent two weeks. But as we always see after uh, uh, attacks on Israelis, there's a spike of in settler violence and kind of a retaliation uh, acts by settlers towards Palestinians. Uh, much more raids on villages, uh, throwing stones on cities. Uh, and we've seen uh, a spike of incidents this time uh, too. So it's, it's hard to single out uh, you know, one incident and say this is because of that, it's uh, it's kind of a, um, a chicken and an egg. You cannot say what starts what, but there is a rise in violence in general in the area. Can you tell us? I mean, without going too into too detailed specifically, what are the nature of 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 the settler attacks on Palestinians? Are they are they everywhere across the West Bank? Like, where is kind of the hot the the hot spots or the friction points, as the IDF likes to call them, and um, what are the nature of them? I mean, what is the resulting damage? So in terms of uh, geography, it's all over the West Bank, but we do have what they are because, as you said, friction areas, which is uh, uh, south of Hebron, the Shiloh Valley, the Itzhar Nablus area. Uh, so you have certain places where you see it more often and even there are more, uh, I would say, uh, uh, you can expect violence there. Uh, and the fact that the, the army can say that doesn't suggest that they actually do something in the, those areas to prevent it. But I wanna go back to the reasons for the settler violence. And I think that's really important to understand because we talk about settler violence, for example, like in the recent two weeks because of the spike that happened maybe because of the, uh, the terror attack. But uh, the reasons are much deeper than that and they're much more calculated than that. Because what we've seen on the ground is how uh, settlers and uh, by proxy the, the, the Israeli state is using settler violence in order to uh, push Palestinians away from their lands and take over Palestinian land and expand in, as a result the Israeli control over Palestinian land in the West Bank. So this is the end game. This is why. And we... There's a lot of names to settler violence. We actually like to, in Yashdin, we like to call it ideologically motivated crimes because the motivation is the ideology that uh, Israel should control these areas and not Palestinians. And the motivation is to, to threaten them, to have them fear the settlers in order for them not to access their own lands and then Israelis can take over. So I would say this is the main, uh, these are the main reasons. Yeah, and I know Yashin a few years back published a really comprehensive report detailing how, why, what it looks like that settler violence is a tool for dispossession. Um, and also, you know, that 
the New York Times actually, I, I always <laughs> quoting them is always a, a risk, but in a recent New York Times article, they quoted, I, this was so eye-catching to me. They quoted a 19-year-old settler who has been involved in establishing illegal outposts. And this is what he says, getting to your point about this is an ideological crime. It's not just a racist motivated. I mean, it is, but it's also more than that. There's a, there's a point to it. So this settler, um, whose name I can't, I didn't write down, but this is what he said. Quote, it's a national war between two people. The conflict is over land. There is less and less land to claim. And so the war over that land will intensify, end quote. So that's kind of talking about the motivation behind what, behind this violence towards Palestinians. It's not just a matter yeah, the, of- The settlers themselves do not argue about that. A lot of yeah. people, when, when I get questions about this, some people say, well, there, there are hate crimes everywhere. And I try to explain it's not a normal hate crime as you describe it in other places. Israel has sometimes hate crimes. This is not the case here. Sometimes it is, as you said, race motivated or nationality motivated, or you can look at it as a, also a hate crime, but it's a certain kind of uh, hate crime and it has political aim. And this is really important to understand. And not, and it's extraordinarily effective, right? Like it's, well, it's yeah. an extraordinarily effective way to take over de facto all of this land, um, because of course the IDF's in the West Bank to protect the settlers. Um, and so the, the mechanisms of protection um, are land takeover. And I yeah. think I want to, I want to ask you to, to talk to our listeners and viewers about one specific village that was in the headlines recently because there was a settler attack. The settlers crept into Termosiah, this village in the Northern West Bank, um, that's actually home to many Palestinian Americans, American citizens, um, coincidence, like, yeah, um, settlers snuck in and actually lit fire, lit a house, a car on fire and committed a lot of other crimes, property damage. Um, and while that's not new, this village has been suffering from settler violence for a long time. It did catch a lot of headlines because I think it was one of the bigger attacks over the past two weeks. So can you talk to us about Termosiah? I know Yeshdin's been incredibly involved there, both in documenting and trying to get some accountability for settler violence, but also in terms of um, land cases and helping these villagers keep their land. <laughs> um, so paint a picture for us about this village and kind of the geography of it. I know that it has quite the view of expanding settlements and also what the, the villagers have suffered. So this village is located in the Shiloh Valley. It's an area between Ramallah and uh, Nablus. And uh, actually it is surrounded by settlements and outposts, illegal outposts. So far they're illegal anyway, uh, which means that there is a lot of struggle over the, the control of the land surrounding Tumusaya. Now you have to understand maybe just a little bit of a background on West Bank in general. So, you know, uh, as a result of the Oslo Agreement, we have the division between areas A, B, and C. A is, a is the towns and cities, the big cities, uh, such as Ramallah and Nablus. B is usually where the villages sit on, just the built area of the village. And then the land surrounding the village, the agricultural land of the village is usually area C. You have some villages also in area C, but mostly the villages itself sits on area B, especially in this area that we're talking about. And the surrounding land is Area C. Now, Area C is also where all the settlements and outposts are. And the main struggle over land in the West Bank currently is the struggle over the control on Area C. 
Israel and a lot of the Israelis more and more sees uh, Area C as part of Israel. When we talk about annexation and the Caribbean annexation, we are talking about mainly what's going on in, on Area C and how Israel treats Area C as part of uh, bigger Israel or um, sovereign Israel. And more and more so, especially now when the, with the new government that is taking us to full annexation of Area C. So, but even before, as you said earlier, even before uh, this new government, this uh, this calling annexation, the, the de facto annexation on the ground, uh, I think Tomusaya is a very case, a very good case study to look at, because what we see there is the village Tomusaya and some neighboring uh, villages as well are surrounded by uh, the Shiloh uh, and the Shvut Rachel uh, settlements, but also many outposts such as uh, Esh Kodesh and Adeyad, Achia, Kida, and we have others, which are, uh, I would say, violent outposts, uh, neither in the past or right now, and very, very active in trying to, to take over more and more Palestinian land. And when you look at maps of this area, we see that a lot of uh, the land that used to be, be belongs to Palestinians now have either an outpost sits on the land or um, some ways of uh, Israeli control of the land, especially using agriculture. So you have the big um, Achia farm, for example, that sits on some Palestinian land. Uh, you have others, uh, others and it's, it's hard to do this, this in a podcast where you can only hear but not see. But if you look at maps of this area so you, and throughout the years, so you can see the development of these places. Now, when you come, I, I, maybe I will, I will say something. I told you before when we before we started recording, I wrote my first report as a researcher in Yashdin uh, was on this area, and this, in this report we took uh, we took aerial photo aerial photos of this area for many many years, and we examined the the expansion of the outposts. and then we compared this with the uh, locations of settler violence incidents. And what you can see is a complete match between, between the two. So in the beginning, when the, the outpost is small, you have the, the violent incidents very close to where the, the few caravans uh, of the beginning of the outpost are. But then when they develop and grow, the settler violence gets also spread as kind of following the spread of the, of the outpost. From that, you can conclude that this is how they expand. They use the violence that pushes the Palestinians out of the area, and then they take over the land, whether it's by uh, building more uh, houses or construction, or uh, taking it with uh, agricultural takeover. And this is a very, very good example in Tomusa because they have a lot of olive, uh, olive trees, uh, vineyards, and they have, uh, they used to have a lot of agriculture, which is seasonal in the area. They cannot no longer do cultivate the land for seasonal uh, um, crops because they have no access to the land, and also the the olive trees. Over the years, we in Yashdin documented tens incidents of cutting of trees, and sometimes we are talking about hundreds of trees getting cut off at the same incident in one day. Um, what we also see in this area is the involvement of the uh, of the Israeli state. So all these outposts that are built illegally or so-called illegally uh, around uh, the village of Tomusaya also enjoy 
uh, funds from the state and infrastructure, and of course protection by the army, but also the protection is achieved in restriction of Palestinian movement. So once there is a Jewish settlement near uh, a village, now the farmers cannot enter their land freely. Usually it, it is restricted to twice a year for plowing and for harvesting season. Sometimes it's closed altogether if it's very close to the, to the outpost. And this is all in the name of security. Uh, another thing that is, I think, important to mention, maybe two things. One is that um, the obligation of the, the military is also to protect the Palestinian, not just the, the Israeli settlers, but most of the, the, the soldiers are not aware of this obligation and they certainly did not follow it. Maybe we'll expand on that later on. And another point I want to stress is maybe the attention this attack on Trumusaya got from the media and from the public in the recent weeks. And this is only because it was well documented. There was a tilling for footage of the of the arson. Usually, we have documented many cases like that, and we don't see so much attention. Sometimes, usually, actually, it doesn't get any attention at all, not in Israel and not abroad. Uh, and maybe another word about like numbers. So, it has been documented uh, in the recent years. Uh, 50, 56 cases of settler violence, whether uh, damage to property or proper violence in the uh, Tumusaya area, just Tumusaya, not the entire area. Uh, um, this is, of course, not the, uh, the total number of incidents, that just the numbers of incidents that was reported to us. Uh, in 49 of the cases, uh, the Palestinians went to the police and filed a complaint. You want to guess how many Israeli police, correct? Israeli police. There's no one else. Yeah. Yeah. You want to guess how many indictments? One. So out of all of these incidents, and we're talking about several years, only one indictment. And this is very rare that there are any indictments. So this is something I guess we'll talk about it uh, later on. But uh, it's a good uh, zoom in to look at one village and to understand what is the reality of living in such village exposed to so many attacks and settler violence and basically have no uh, answer from the Israeli authorities who are in charge of enforcing the law of protection. Yeah, and for Termasaya, which, you know, sits sits in this little valley and can see the outposts and the settlements growing and can watch the settlers descend down mm -hmm. the hills and know they're coming to instigate violence and and what that violence looks like it's not always harm bodily harm but it's cutting down olive trees it's damage to properties slashing tires as you said it's it's the state violence of road closures and land confiscation and all of that. And I think the the new report by Yashin categorizes these sort of things and looks at the types of different um, violence um, that that's perpetrated. And, and I just hope that listeners can understand that this is, it's, it's so all encompassing. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a very multifaceted um, strategy of, of these settlers to terrorize their Palestinian neighbors in, in a, pointed effort to take control of more land, right? Yeah, so maybe just more two, two more points. One is that actually we have a, a very good relationship with one of the residents of Tomosaya. His name is Mahmoud Al-Araj. 
has a lot of agriculture, had or has uh, a lot of agricultural land. We've been accompanying him to file complaints with the police and representing him for years now. We all have been to his house and, uh, and know him and his family. And actually this guy has a book of all the incidents, even before Yashdin existed, of all the incidents that he reported to the police about of settler violence. And there is no indictment in any of them. And we are talking about tens of complaints uh, uh, during the years. Um, this is one point. And I think, and from his house, like you can see from the window, the, as you said, the outposts are growing and his land is getting smaller and smaller and, and less access to his land. And actually feel, he feels going to the land because once he goes to the land, there can be encounters with uh, the settlers and he can be uh, attacked, which happened a few times mm -hmm. to him and his family and other members of the village. So this is something to keep in mind. I think another one is, uh, Besides the um, assistant with filing complaints with the police, Yashdin also tries to help uh, the residents of Tumsaya to fight for the rights of the land. And uh, one of the, uh, the petitions we had to the high court was uh, together with other villages uh, in the area, and it was uh, demanding to evacuate the outpost of Adeyad. And this was kind of an experiment um, uh, petition for us. Because on this case, we tried to argue not only that the construction is illegal and the outpost is illegal and sits uh, partly on, on private Palestinian land, but also that this uh, outpost is a source, is a major source for settler violence or, and for human rights violations, and therefore needs to be evacuated. And of course, this has been going on for many years in the court. But uh, basically it led to the uh, retroactive authorizations or efforts to retroactively authorize a day ad. And ever since we also have now a new uh, official settlement uh, in the area, Amichai. And now a day ad is and the neighboring uh, outposts are going to be included in the big uh, plan of uh, Amichai. So even the, the um, when you have Palestinians who actually try to believe in the Israeli authorities and address the Israeli court in order to get justice, they do not get justice. They get the, the, the kosher stamp on these uh, illegal places and right. basically reward for settlers who break the law, who uh, uh, inflict violence to Palestinians. Uh, yeah, and I wanna dig in on the accountability piece and um, you know, there's, there could be books, and I'm sure there will be, and if not already, books written about the entire system in which Palestinians who are an occupied people have to file their criminal complaints with the Israeli police and how that is in and of itself a system that is just absurd <laughs> on the surface. And the more you dig into it, truly problematic, truly. I mean, there's even the hope of justice is, is far-fetched most times. Because as we've seen, like even when there's video of crimes happening, the police will still raise their hands and say, we don't know who that was, or there's no witnesses. And so, you know, it's it's rare to to the data on your on your new report, only 3% of crimes reported to Israeli police, hopefully I got that right, result in conviction. And that's from 2005 to 2020, 2022. I mean, yeah. this is this is a long um sample. Of, of that. And that's only the crimes that are reported to police. Of course, as you said before, there's so many that aren't reported because 
I mean, to do so takes a lot of effort. It takes, you know, willingness to engage with your oppressor and your, your occupying um, force, but that's the only place Palestinians have for any- We actually document sometimes or... incidents where Palestinians are not willing to file complaints uh, with the Israeli police, and we ask them why. And during the years, we've seen increase of the reluctant, uh, reluctance to file complaints with the Israeli police, and the reason that we mostly hear is that they have no uh, no uh, reason to trust the Israeli police that they, it will do their jobs and uh, that they had a bad experience them or their neighbors and friends and acquaintance and we cannot argue with that because they're they're right they know the statistics as well as we do that there yeah, is so, not a lot of chance that they will actually get justice so why right, you just to reiterate three percent result in conviction but another stat that you have in this paper is that from this over the same period, you say 81 and a half percent of cases, you have documented failure of the investigation police conduct. Talk to me about that. Like what's okay, so 81 what and a half does is we represent, uh, legally represent uh, victims of offenses, Palestinian victims of offenses. And we assist them with filing the, the police complaint itself, because as you said, it's not as accessible to them uh, and not as easy. Then we, we document the police investigation, we monitor it. And when the file closes, which as you can see from our data, it's 93% of the cases, we get a copy of the police investigation, but also we get the official ground for closing. And as we've seen in uh, the majority of the cases, big majority of the cases, the, uh, the cases is closed because the police failed to either find any suspect at all, and then they close it under the ground of uh, offender unknown, or the fa they failed to collect enough evidence to file an indictment, and then they close it under insufficient evidence. So these two grounds, we in Yashdin mark as a failure in the investigation because they could not actually crack the case and file an indictment. In, the, in those two grounds, it's, there is no argument that the crime was committed. There is no argument on that. Just the, the fact that they cannot file, find who did it, the suspect, or they could not uh, gather enough evidence. So that's why we consider those cases as a failure of the investigation. Uh, another, I think, data, interesting data in our data sheet is the fact that uh, it really changes who the victim is. So uh, as we, we've seen, in, we got also, all the data we talked about so far is uh, from Yeshdin's sample, from Yeshdin's uh, cases that we monitor. But we also asked the police to provide data every year. And uh, we got data this year that suggests that there is a difference between uh, how they investigate when the, the victim of the offense is uh, Palestinian versus cases where the victim is, is a non-Israeli, meaning uh, that he is either an activist, but mostly a member of the security forces, the Israeli military, uh, security forces. So uh, let's say, for example, a settler who attacked a policeman. Uh, so those would be the non-Palestinian cases. And the difference is kind of amazing because we see that there is a, a, a higher chance in. Uh, 2.5 uh, higher chance to get uh, the file to to get an indictment when uh, the victim is a non-Palestinian. So that we kind of see as 
the data itself, we see it as a matter of um, kind of a proof that it's not a matter of uh, ability, but it's a matter of uh, will. So yeah. the police has the tools, has the ability to, in, to investigate more seriously, but they just don't want to. And this goes, uh, I think Yashvin has been saying that for many, many years, because as we said, it's not something that is new to this government or, or this uh, current regime in Israel. It's been going on. Settler violence phenomena is, uh, is a very old phenomena in Israel. And this is, uh, we call it the commander's spirit. Uh, basically, it comes from high up, from the governments, the, the different governments in Israel, the, the tendency to address the settlers as um, good people, uh, maybe the new Zionists, uh, the people who are the new um, pioneers who uh, look to, uh, they're kind of serving Israeli interests. So they don't take them as uh, seriously as uh, they should, and they definitely do not mark them as criminals. And therefore they don't investigate properly whenever there is a complaint about them, and they don't make a lot of effort. We've, we've been seeing in investigation cases that we get, sometimes the only investigative uh, material in the case is the complaint itself and nothing more, which means that the police didn't even bother to do one investigative step. Um, and I think when you when we talk about settler violence, and sometimes in Israel and, and also internationally, this is addressed as price tag maybe. So it gets a lot of attention in the spikes uh, periods. Uh, and then we have um, uh, police uh, officers and politicians who talks about how difficult it is to address this phenomena and how complicated it is. But I wanna say, Mostly, we are not talking about the most uh, sophisticated criminals. This is not organized crime. This is not a mafia. And if Israel would have really wanted to address this uh, phenomena and to put an end to it, it would have been successful. The problem is the motivation, not the, uh, the abilities. Right. Right. And I... Um, you know, it's it's a tricky conversation to have about that this is a long-term problem, but to also recognize the moment we're in with the with the government that we have right now <laughs> and how truly extraordinary it is to have, you know, Ben Gavir in power of Israeli police who have openly lauded and threatened to shoot, you know, Palestinians and with absolutely zero fear of accountability or any indictment. And of course now with um with making it easier for Israeli citizens to obtain guns in this huge spike in gun permitting that that has happened over the past two weeks even. Um, it's the climate feels to not only permit, but to instruct even violence against Palestinians, particularly in um, in this battle over Area C that you described um, um, before. So I don't know if you want to add to kind of this current this current yeah, climate. Maybe yes, maybe say just that uh, if, we, if we thought that there is a near impunity so far for settlers uh, regarding settler violence, this is for sure is going to increase under uh, Ben Gvir's uh, authority. First of all, he got a lot of authority. It's much more uh, wide and expanded than any of his uh, predecessors in the job, on the job. So uh, we are really worried that as someone who can actually 
dictate the investigations uh, policy to the police. He would order them not to investigate or to give it a less of a priority uh, with everything that has to do with settler violence, uh, which means a full impunity for uh, violent uh, settlers. And yeah, we are worried of what's going to happen in the West Bank. We feel that it's already shown because um, the atmosphere is, uh, is here and now we can do kind of whatever we want. Uh, in a more maybe personal note, we, I'm really worried about our staff actually. We have field researchers in the West Bank. Uh, we have volunteers of ESDM who are also joining our field researchers. And we are really worried for their safety now as well because no one knows what will happen uh, while once the violence is so, I would say upfront and um, um, maybe allowed even. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about the violence of IDF and the soldiers yeah. and, and the- This is an, uh, a subject for another podcast. Yeah, exactly. Well, I um, there is no good way to wrap up this conversation um, and to put a happy note on it, but um, I just would ask what, you know, the, I always try to end on a, what material actions can we take or what, where is the, I mean, I couldn't use the word hope, but um, knowing that the Israeli police don't, are the only avenue for Palestinians locally on the ground to submit their complaints and try to find restitution, justice, whatever it is. Um, but that that is such an ineffective um, place and, you know, the uh, or avenue to go. And I just, the words of um, a Palestinian journalist, Saeed Erekat, who works here in DC, and he relentlessly attends US State Department briefings and regularly asks the questions, where do Palestinians go? Where do they go to seek justice and to seek, you know, even just accountability for for crimes? Um, where do they go? They 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 go to the police or they don't. And there's nothing. There's nothing offered there. So what is the what is the bigger picture here? What's the call Yashin has put out? I mean, I'm, I know Yashin has not been scared to call what's happening in the West Bank apartheid. So what are the levers of accountability that that need to be involved here? Um, to stop this violence, to afford any measure of protection to, to Palestinians? So, first of all, I would say that if I had a very good answer, uh, maybe, maybe this whole problem would be resolved already. But I do think that there is, uh, there is a responsibility and uh, should be an accountability also for the international community. And this is the 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 occupation is not an, an a closed matter between Israelis and Palestinians. It is an international matter, and the international community has uh, the obligation to put an end to it and to help Israel or force Israel depends on how you look at it uh, to do whatever it takes to to end this. Uh, and as you said, Yashdin has uh, published a few years ago a report, uh, which is a legal opinion, analyzing the, the legal situation in the West Bank, determining that uh, the crime of apartheid is being committed, com um, committed by Israel in the West Bank. Uh, I don't think you can take only settler violence and pin it on that, but if you look at the bigger picture, and as we described before, 
how this is a, and we just talked about several um, components of the occupation, but put all put together, uh, this is a system and a systematic uh, um, policies and practice uh, that are aimed uh, uh, by Israel uh, to basically control not over on, on not only over the land but also over the people of the West Bank Palestinians and uh, to um, I would say cement and preserve the Israeli control over Palestinians and uh, also to preserve the superiority of Israelis over and the inferior, inferior uh, status of Palestinians which are kind of the components of the crime of apartheid if you look at the definition, the legal definition. Uh, so this is why we got to this conclusion. And we feel that from this conclusion, it also, if you accept this conclusion, it also um, um, kind of puts the obligation on uh, the international community to act uh, accordingly. So they are uh, legal institutes, uh, international institutes and uh, legal tools that can be used in order to, to have Israel accountable for its actions. Great. Well, I really want to, to maybe end in a more- uh, Great, uh, thank you. Yes. Thematic. No, no I'm, I'm trying to think what can it be? <laughs> I know, right? No, I, I think, we are going to a very difficult situation, uh, I guess, reality in the coming, uh, I hope not very long years uh, with this new government. But if we need to find a way to look at it in a more positive way, uh, I would say there is a shift in the Israeli public. We see a lot of people on the street. Of course, they're not going to the streets to, to protest occupation, the Israeli occupation. But uh, I think they, are, they have, they are going through a, a process which is kind of an eye-opening process that can lead them also to see what Israel is doing, not only the Israeli government, not, not only within Israel, but also in the West Bank, especially since it's the new government is taking this to the very uh, edge. The, the talks about annexation, uh, the, the turning uh, Israel into one state, which is an apartheid state. I don't think it's, it's well with a lot of the Israelis, even those who doesn't care so much about uh, uh, the Palestinians. They do care about what Israel looks like and whether Israel is a democracy or not. And that can be an opening for, I hope, uh, more protests and even uh, maybe um, stopping the government from doing uh, and implementing its plans. So yeah, that and might, I think might it, be an optimistic way to look at it. Yeah, and it also opens the door for me to praise and thank Yashin and the rest of the organizations in the ecosystem that continue to document what's actually happening on the ground so that the facts can be forefront in, in, in describing what's happening there and that it's not um doesn't happen in silence that we can continue to shine a spotlight on what Palestinians are suffering the dynamics in the West Bank um and of course Gaza and East Jerusalem and um the the work of documenting it is difficult as you said earlier it's increasingly risky um but it's so so important and we uh none of none of the rest of it would would be able to happen there's no 
way to mobilize or convince people without documenting the facts. So thank you so much for the work you do and for leading a team of field researchers and volunteers that that go to these places that speak with Palestinians that um, that I mean, obviously, your field researchers are Palestinian um, that that document these things because it's it's necessary and it's um, we as FMEP are so proud to support it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, thank you for your- having me and for uh, taking an interest in these issues. Not everyone does, so thank you. Yeah. Incredibly important. We um, you know look forward to having you back in future installments uh, of, of this podcast. So thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode. Um, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, fmep.org, um, along with the resource page for this podcast, where I'm going to um, include a video recording, a pot, audio recording, of course. Um, Ziv's bio will be there, along with a list of resources from Yashin, from FMEP, Um, about all the topics that we discussed today for further reading and um, documentation. Um, Please make sure if you're subscribed to this podcast, if you're not already, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, um, and also check out our website for upcoming events, including a a webinar tomorrow that we're co-hosting with Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, um, that we're really excited about. It's um, the second in a series of webinars of learning and unlearning Palestine and how to be an ally and how to show up and think um, and talk about these topics. So um, with that, thanks again, Zeev. I'm Kristen McCarthy signing off on this episode of Occupied Box. Take care.